This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we're coming uh, close to the end of James. We've got a a few more sermons ahead, but as we've been walking through this book, we've been uh, walking through this series that's been titled Faith Works. And the ultimate reason why we chose that name is because we're really trying to identify all the ways that James is showing us that our faith should be informing the way we live. Our faith should be informing the way we, we manifest what it is we say we believe. We've seen all the ways that James has been giving kind of little, almost miniature TED Talks on multiple subjects about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. He's talked to us about what it means to control our tongue, to speak in a way that shows that we walk with Jesus. He's been showing us all the ways we need to watch the way we do what we do, watch the way that we talk with each other, watch the way that we love or the ways that we fail to love each other. Most of these chapters of have really been pointing out the ways in which we are prone to be self-absorbed. That's why last week's sermon, we talked about the ways in which we can be so focused on our own ambition and our selfish ambition and how that leads to conflict and quarrels and, and war, ultimately. We've looked at so many different ways James has shown us that we oftentimes are our greatest enemy because our own selfishness and our own self-absorption leads us to sin against ourselves, against each other, and against God. And so our text today uh, does not make any exception. It, It walks through the same kind of principle, but it goes a little bit deeper. James is walking us through, again, just this very sinful nature of our hearts. But he's going to hit on something that, on the surface of it, doesn't seem bad at all. He ultimately is pointing out the ways in which our plans and the ways that we make our plans can also be rooted in selfishness. To be more specific, rooted in self-sufficiency and how our self-sufficiency itself can be sin. He actually refers to it as, as evil. How do you make your plans? The Bible makes it very clear that we should be wise in the way that we make our plans. Right? The, the Bible makes it clear that it's nothing wrong with making plans. Planning isn't bad. Remember Proverbs 6, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Later in Proverbs 30, the ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Nothing wrong with planning. The question is, In whom do we trust most when we plan? In whom do we place our greatest trust and confidence when we plan? James is going to show us here uh, what happens when, uh, during our planning, we have misplaced sovereignty. See, you're only operating in one of two buckets, misplaced sovereignty or properly placed sovereignty. And so James is going to break this down for us. What does it look like when we have misplaced sovereignty? And I hope it hits all of us because whether you're a good planner, and I know there are many of you that are excellent planners, uh, you take pride in planning things far enough out, trying to account for every potential contingency, trying to account for everything that could potentially go wrong. 
There are plenty of us that have planned for a lot of things to go well. And all of us are living right now, this very day, in a world where our plans did not work out. Nobody here listening under the sound of my voice thought two years ago that we would be still living in the midst of a pandemic. None of us planned for upwards of 700,000 people to be gone two years ago. None of us planned for the ways that uh, our jobs have changed. Many of us very, in our very church, we all planned that, that we would be in church right now. Even when the pandemic began, we as a church, we planned to possibly be meeting right now. We had hoped to be meeting right now. We made plans. We try to be wise. We all have been in these places where we have uh, built our expectations on what we've planned. But you know how you can determine whether or not your sovereignty is misplaced or properly placed? Where does your heart go when your plans don't work out? Where have our hearts gone when the things that we thought would happen, the vacation we planned, the job we thought would be there, the church we thought we'd be able to attend is not there, cannot happen. Where do our hearts go? If our hearts get to a place of bitterness and frustration and anger and annoyance and feeling perturbed to some degree, there's a good chance that our sovereignty was misplaced. Because while we plan for a thing, we have to remember the scripture says, a man makes his plans, but God orders his steps. So James is going to walk us through the difference between misplaced sovereignty and properly placed sovereignty. And think about what he uses. He uses a phrase we know all too well, our lives being a vapor. So remember this. This is a small passage of scripture with a very large truth. And we need it more now than ever because all of us are living uh, in a world with broken plans and we're struggling. And some of us at may even be in a place where a lot of our plans have worked out, which means we might even trust in our planning even more than we trust in God. In either case, self-sufficiency is at the root of our sin, is at the root of our idolatry in the way that we plan. And what James is saying is if we're following Jesus and faith is really being mature in you, is being matured in you, then it will show itself, it will manifest itself in the way that we plan. Let's read James uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you're like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This subject is so relevant, as we said, for us today, uh, because we all make plans uh, one way or, or, or another. And we've already shown nothing wrong with making plans, right? We make plans for college. We make plans for jobs. We make plans for marriage. We make plans for a family. We make plans for a vacation. We make plans for a retirement. And again, making plans isn't wrong. We see that, right? If you remember Paul's missionary journeys as he uh, was traveling much of the uh, known world, uh, planting churches and spreading the gospel, 
He made plans with regards to his travels. When you look through the book of Acts, you see him constantly saying, I'm planning to come here. If the Lord wills, I'm going to go there. In fact, making plans and setting goals, that's a key to being successful in any venture that we undertake in life. So, so making plans isn't bad. And, and many times we fail to make plans because maybe we have an idol of comfort and that's a whole other issue. So it's important to make plans and it's godly to make plans. But there's a right way to plan and there's a wrong way to plan. And James discusses both of them. So when you look at, uh, when we think about what it means, what the right way to make plans, uh, how that should look, right? How do we make plans rightly? And really, James couches that in whether or not we're submitting to God's will. In other words, we can make our plans, but we should make them contingent on God's approval. That's one big thing. It's not enough to just say, I'm planning something and I, I hope God will meet me there. It's, the, it's more of, I'm planning, these are the plans I'm making, and I hope and, I'm, and I want to make sure that they are in line and in accordance with God's will as revealed to me through his word. That's what Paul did, right? In Acts 18, 21, Paul is, get, is saying goodbye. He's traveling away from one city in which he had planted a church, and he's meeting folks there, and he uses the phrase God willing. He says in Acts 18, 21, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Very moving scene as he's leaving the Ephesian church. And then in Corinth, you see Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. You see this happening over and over again. Uh, you say it uh, when, when, when we see passages like that and we begin to uh, say, well, okay, that's a good example. I should always say if the Lord wills then. That's a common phrase, right? People will often say, I'm going to go, <clears throat> I'm going to go see my mom, Lord willing. I'm going to go next year to visit X, Y, and Z, Lord willing. And I grew up in a, in a culture where <clears throat> that was a common thing. That was a, a normal thing. It was normal to just kind of append that the end of your statement because it just seemed like the more godly thing to say. And we may even mean it. We may think we mean it. We're, we're basically saying I, uh, it's a humble way to, to sound like I'm really hoping God will make this happen. But a lot of times it's really just, it's nothing more than a trite phrase. It's something that we say to appear humble. But James is not really caring about what mantra you use when you're talking about your plans. He's talking about the heart posture you have when you're making your plans. How do you know if you really are living a if the Lord wills kind of life? Because when things don't work out the way you planned, the way you respond will show. When things don't work out the way that you planned, you will know for sure if you were going, if the Lord wills, or if my will. More often than not, when we say, if the Lord will, we're inviting God into what we've already determined should happen. That's, that's really what it is. When I say, if the Lord wills, Lord willing, it's really, if God knows what's right, he'll meet me here. And what James is saying is that is boasting. That's actually not a humble posture. It's not a, that's not the heart that you should have. That's not a mature faith. And it's shown by the way that you worked your plan. It's, it's if we really want our plans, right, to be godly and successful, then the first thing we do is seek to discern what God's will, uh, what his will is, and then to plan accordingly. And there's some places we can know for sure objectively what God's will is. Right? There are certain things, Scripture makes it clear what God's will is for our lives, the ways that He expects us to comport our lives. 
Those are things that we can, there's no debating, right? We, we, we know that. And then there are other places where it's not as clear. So to the degree that it's possible, here are the things God says he wants us to do, right? He tells us first to understand his will. Ephesians 5, 17, he says, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So there's a degree to which we should be living our lives and saying, Lord, I just want to understand what your will is whenever possible. Colossians 1.9 says, for this reason also, since the day we heard this, we have not stopped praying for you. We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So there's a, we can pray to understand his will. We can pray to be filled full of the knowledge of his wisdom, full of what it means to, to truly kind of be in line with God's will. <clears throat> and then Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and the perfect will of God. So, so there is, it's not like the, the will of God is just this completely amorphous thing that kind of evades us. There are things about God's will that are knowable. There are things that we can truly know. And sometimes it may not be, we may not know exactly uh, what has to happen on one end. We may not know um, uh, the right path to get to a certain thing, but we will always know the right heart posture. God's will is always very clear on where our hearts should be in any and all situations. And so this, this battle, this battle with ourselves, this battle for self-sufficiency truly is a battle of the heart. How do I live in such a way where I am reminded that I'm truly, I'm truly reliant on what God does and not what I do? If I'm a great planner and my plans work out well, that's great. On the back end of that, when a plan works out uh, really, really well and everything kind of worked out the way you planned for it to, look back and go, man, God really worked. And I will say this, but we need to mean it. That really, that, that had less to do. Yes, I planned and I tried to use wisdom, but it truly was because God was in this that this happened. Truly because God willed for this to happen this way. And, and if it didn't work out a certain way, we still have to have the same thing. God, now, sometimes it didn't work out. We've talked about it uh, in the last sermon. Sometimes things didn't work out because what we were asking for was rooted in our selfish ambition. And so basically that means we were praying something that was not God's will. But even when things just don't work out and maybe we didn't have a sinful uh, posture and we didn't have a sinful motivation, but it didn't work out. Even things that we really want that are really good and it didn't work out. Things that uh, have occurred that have been horribly painful and we're going, Lord, I just want to know what your will is. That's painful. It's, it's so hard. And God is saying, I'm with you. I need you to have the same heart posture still that says, what my heart needs to be, even when my plans don't work out, Lord, help me to be able to hold on to a faith that says you're still good and that your will, whatever it is, is what's best for me. So, so if, that, if that is the case, of course, we see that uh, this is connected to God's revealed will. So that, that what are things that are God's revealed will? Look, I can't tell you what God's will is for who you should marry. We might be able to say who, what God's will is for who you shouldn't, depending on certain situations. Can't tell you who God uh, says you should marry. Can't tell you which job you should take. Can definitely tell you certain jobs you probably shouldn't take. Can't tell you which jeans you should wear. I won't even touch any other <laughs> possibility with that. 
At the end of the day, the, the, the perfect objective will of God is revealed in what is right and what is wrong. And so we can find the things that are right and objectively wrong in the pages of Scripture, the things that God has revealed to us. When we, when we know God's revealed will from walking with him, learning about him, studying his word, then we can act and plan accordingly. I need to say this because there are times where we will plan to do a thing that is completely against the very word of God, completely against the very heart of God. And then we almost like play, it's almost like we're gambling and we go, well, if it worked out, that means God must be on, God must be in it. And, and many times we'll take a fatalist approach If it worked out, that meant it was the right thing. If it didn't work out, that means it was the wrong thing. That's not how God works either. There are plenty of times where what you think is a good thing and it works out ends up hurting you later. There are some times where God allows a thing to happen. Doesn't mean that it's the thing that uh, should happen there or it's the thing that was right on your end, but he allows a thing to happen so that the consequences will then in turn grow you in a way that you were not growing before. There are times where certain things might even be allowed or you might disobediently uh, be successful. And then there are consequences that come that we have to learn from and go, wow, I really thought that was, I thought that was God, but, but, and maybe God allowed it so that these consequences would happen. And now I've got to figure out what to do with these consequences. But if you have a heart that's not rooted in self-sufficiency, you'll even take the consequences differently. So we know that there are things that God makes clear are right and wrong, things that have been revealed. And so uh, the right way to plan in all those cases is to show our submission to God. And we leave our plans subject to his will. We plan, but we truly leave it subject to his will. And it's like, which means if it doesn't work out, my heart will be here. If it works out, my heart will be here. If it works out, my heart can't be go me. And if it doesn't work out, it can't be poor me. Because ultimately, it's got to be all about this is God's will then. All right, Lord, show me what heart I need to have then if it doesn't work out, when it doesn't work out. That's the right way to make plans. Look at what is right and objectively wrong. Be able to make plans to ensure that your heart is not rooted on the wrong side of that diagnostic. And then wait and go, okay, Lord, if it works out, great. I know how to worship you there. If it doesn't work out, I know how to still be worshipful. That's how a mature faith works. Now, Let's look at how we can make plans wrongly, how we can uh, misplace our sovereignty. We can ignore God's will. To ignore God's will, to ignore God's heart in our planning is really to, to practice foolishness, to practice folly. Look again at verses 13 through 15. He says, uh, Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city, spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. Look, one of the things that we have known that you should know by now is that life is complex. Life is not easily knowable. The way things work out in life, most of us, most of us have made plans to be in a certain place and we're someplace different. Most of us thought life would work out a certain kind of way and it has worked out differently because life is uncertain. Life is complex. There's complexities of of time. Okay, when do I do this? Will it happen today? Tomorrow? When? 
Life is complex in terms of, of activities, right? The example that James uses here is that of a business person, right? This businessman. Now, whatever was going on in Jerusalem at the time, again, we know there's already been uh, persecution that's been happening. People are scattered everywhere. People are trying to make plans for their own protection, for their own preservation. So it's likely that you've got certain business leaders who are going, well, we've got the wherewithal to be able to change our situation. So here's the plans we're going to do, because with this persecution that's coming, if I go over there, buy this property, sell it for this, I'll have more money in order to be able to have more comfort and more security for me and mine very likely that was some of the conversations that were going on, given the context and given what we know was happening at the time. And so you've got folks, we have people now, right, who are great business leaders, really wise with business, really wise with their money. And so when issues come up, you've already got a plan. You've got a great retirement. You've got a nest egg. Nothing wrong with that. The question is, is your sufficiency rooted in that, in your ability to do that? Because here, these folks, they're, they're doing the best they can with what they have. They're saying, hey, I, persecution's coming. I've got to use the tools that I have in order to, to make my life better for me and my family. And so they're asking the questions, okay, when should I buy this? Where should I buy this? Should I sell? Should I buy? So many decisions to make. So many mistakes could be made. If it's possible to know God's will on any matter, that would increase the likelihood that our decisions and our plans would be correct. So the complexity is hard. I don't know when, I don't know what, I don't know uh, exactly how to do a thing. And then not only is life complex, but as we said, life is so uncertain. No one has a guarantee of tomorrow, whether there will even be a day or what will happen, right? Only God can bring about what he wills for the future without fail. He's the only one. We think we can bring things about without fail. Only God can guarantee that. So since this is true, we should desire to make plans that are in accordance with his plans. That's it. That's all we can do. And why? Why should we be thinking this? Why should we be like, yes, I've got a track record of really good planning, so I can trust this one now. Problem is, you, all those times, that was great. Your life didn't uh, vaporize at that point, but it certainly can become a vapor tomorrow. What is he showing you? Life isn't just complex. Life isn't just uncertain. Life is frail. Life is fleeting. Things can turn just like that. All of us know someone or, or have a relationship with people who have been affected by this coronavirus, this pandemic. I just got a phone call yesterday that a friend of mine that I've known for upwards of 20 years passed away, 45 years old. Here today, gone tomorrow, people are, and these are times where we may even know that a certain illness has befallen a certain person. We still don't know when they might succumb. We're hoping they don't, but life is frail. You can't predict it. You see, James is not just bringing this up so that he can uh, maybe guilt you or try to create this extra weightiness uh, to, to manipulate you. He's basically showing you, you need to know that you are not sovereign over your life. You need to understand that as, as sufficient as you feel you are or as self-sufficient as you have demonstrated yourself to be and as successful as you may have been or as successful as you hope to be, if, you're, if your hope, your greatest hope is in yourself, 
it will be folly. And not only will it be folly, it is actually sin. It's not enough to just believe strongly in yourself and then make things happen. And ultimately he's saying, why is it silly to believe in yourself? Because you have no control over when your lights turn off. You have no control over when you are gone. He uses this, this expression, he uses as an object lesson, uh, vapor. The idea of just something that is there for a, a little bit of time and then gone. I spent time as a weather forecaster in the Air Force, and we spent a lot of time focusing on the atmospheric conditions. And you would look at uh, what would happen when an airplane would go through the sky. And when the airplane would come, a lot of the exhaust that would come out would, would sometimes interact with the often humid air. And when the humidity of the air was a certain level, it would connect. Some of the, some of the uh, particles in the air would connect to the exhaust. And when they would connect to the exhaust, you know what would be left? is this trail of condensation. We called it a contrail or a vapor trail. Sometimes it would last for minutes. Sometimes it would last for three to five hours. You don't know always how long it'll last. But if you saw it in the morning, you wouldn't see it at night. Because the nature of vapor is to never be lasting. The nature of vapor is to be seen for a short period of time, if seen at all, and then not seen again. So when you think through why James would bring this up, James is bringing this up. Not Sometimes people use this passage as the ultimate YOLO passage. Life's a vapor. Let me go do what I have to do. Let me go make my life my greatest. Let me go travel the world. Let me get, create my bucket list. Nothing wrong with wanting to do those things. This is not the passage for that. This passage is basically saying, stop trusting in yourself because yourself will be no more sooner than you think. So if you know that you can't even rely on yourself because you are feeble and frail, then the only answer is I need to be relying on God. My sufficiency should be in Him, not in myself. My hope, my plans should always be contingent on what He does, not on what I planned. If there's something I hope to do and it doesn't happen, and it, and it has not to do with uh, my own sin or disobedience, but just God's will worked out differently, I need to ask God, Lord, I don't need my heart to be postured right because ultimately whatever your will is, this is what's going to be best for me. So life being frail is something that we see throughout the scriptures and it's something we should always be mindful of. Psalm 39 says, in fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Later in verse 11, he says, You discipline a person with punishment for iniquity, consuming like a moth what is precious to him. Yes, every human being is only a vapor. A vapor or a shadow is not substantive. We've been watching how quickly we can succumb to a sickness or an accident that illustrates just how frail we are. So it's foolish then to think that we have the strength on our own. It's foolish to think we have the strength within ourselves to make our plans happen, to bring those things about. So it's frail and life is brief. It appears for a little time, as he says, a vapor appears for a little time. That's what something Job recognized, right? 
Job recognized this during his time of, of lamenting the things that have befallen him, and Job hadn't done anything wrong. Job is the perfect example of somebody who seemed to be a good planner, somebody who planned well, and these horrific things uh, fell upon him. And what did he say? My days fly by faster than a runner. They flee without seeing any good. They sweep by like boats made of papyrus, like an eagle swooping down on its prey. A little bit later, uh, Job says, anyone born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. Now, he's making this over our, our overarching principle, right? That in many ways, the longer you live, the more you have to learn how to deal with disappointment. I think everybody would say that uh, with a few exceptions, the majority of life is more disappointment than not. Because, and why do we get disappointed? Because the expectations don't get met. That's the nature of disappointment. Unmet expectations often becomes current and future resentment and bitterness and frustration. So how do we deal with plans when they don't work out? Well, we have to start with life is complex. Life is hard. Life is, uh, is difficult to figure out. It's uncertain. It's frail. It's quick. So I can't really trust much of even what I do. I need to trust in the one that holds me need the trust in the one who is fully sufficient. So if we plan based on our own sufficiency, that's what James says is arrogance. That's what James says is boasting, this boastful arrogance, this braggadocio is kind of what this Greek word really kind of points to, this, this full of self. And, and you don't have to say you're full of yourself, but you can function in that way. You look at the things that you've accomplished. You look at the things that have happened because of your hard work. And you might be happy that it happened, but there's a degree of pride like, I did this. I like to appear humble, so I'll tell everybody, man, God has been good to me. But truly, I did this. That is the boastful arrogance. And that seems to be what was on display here in Jerusalem with this early, early church. Again, people are really worried about what's coming next. People are worried about what kind of persecution's coming. So you've got certain people that are going, I'm not worried about persecution. I got this. I'm a businessman. I make things happen. I know how to avoid problems. I can't speak for you guys, but I know I'm going to be okay and my family's going to be okay. That seems to be the kind of arrogance that was on display here. And it makes sense. This is who we would be. So to plan this way is boastful. To plan without taking into consideration God's will is to set ourselves up to be above God himself. We exalt ourselves beyond God when we think we can handle things on our own. And anytime you plan this way, it's sin. Verse 16 and 17, what does he say? He says, uh, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. It's sin, why? Because it involves arrogance. It involves boasting. It involves exalting ourselves above God. Our sufficiency is greater than God's sufficiency. That is evil. And it's sin because James is really showing them, you should know better. We should know better. We claim, again, this is faith works, right? A faith that is true, a faith that is mature should work in this way. If that faith is real, if I'm saying, I believe in a sovereign God, who is far more powerful than I, who created me, who reconciled me, who is sanctifying me and remaking me to look more like him, to live more like him, to love more like him, 
to be this image of God, to look like Jesus, then anywhere where I don't function like Jesus is sin. So if I am focusing on my own will and I'm focusing on my own sufficiency, I'm not looking like Jesus, which means I am in sin. We should know better because we know one who is better. We should know better because we follow one who has shown better. We know what is good to plan with God's will in mind. That's why I believe Jesus allowed for the writers to record the time when he's praying right before he's going to be uh, arrested and crucified. Lord, if it be possible, let this cup be removed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. What was he modeling for us? Showing us that ultimately our sufficiency can't be in our ability to evade problems or our, to evade potential damage. Our ultimate sufficiency has to be in what God's will is. Because at the end of the day, we say whatever God's will is, is best. Whatever God's will is, is right. Whatever God's will is, is good. And to do anything else is sin. So how do we make our plans? Let's go back. If we plan without considering the will of God, we're foolish, we're arrogant, and we're sinful. And again, when we say planning with the will of God, that doesn't mean I'm planning knowing everything that God wants. It simply means I'm planning this knowing that God is fully in control, which means if my plans work out, praise be to God. If my plans don't work out, praise be to God, because God is still sovereign. I need to make sure that my sovereignty is not misplaced in myself. It must be fully placed in God. Second, if we make our plans subject to the approval of God, then we're wise, we're submissive and righteous in God's sight. In other words, it's not going, I do things so God can say yay, but I do things because I want to continue to please him. I want my heart posture to be pleasing. This is why it's dangerous for those of us who have been successful in a lot of our endeavors. Because only God knows what the motivation of your heart is. Only God knows where you take your greatest joy in your successes. If I'm taking joy in my good planning, it will certainly be an idol. And you know who will know if you have these, these issues of idolatry around planning? People around you. How do people feel when they know they probably, maybe, whether it's because they messed up or they just completely overlooked something? How do, how do you make people feel when they have not held your plans the way that you wanted them? It, it, it says a lot. Again, Nothing wrong with holding people accountable, but there can be an extra level where people now feel like that who they are as a person, how you esteem people based on these things are rooted in your idolatry, are rooted in how highly you hold your ability to plan and maybe their lack thereof. Or on the other hand, you might be someone who uh, struggles with planning. And you struggle with either because of laziness or because it's just not your wheelhouse. And so you start to really, when things don't work out, you just are beating yourself up and you're going, coming down so hard. Either way, you're still trusting in your sufficiency. So we need to make our plans the way we plan. Plan in such a way, plan in such a way where God would say, that looks like me. Your heart is in line with mine. And then if we endeavor to plan as much as we can within the framework of God's revealed will, right and wrong, then we will increase the likelihood, not necessarily of it being successful all the time, but ensuring that our heart is always aligned rightly. Where we place our sovereignty is always aligned rightly. 
And then as, as, a, as a secondary point that James brings up, remember the reasons why we rest in God's sufficiency is because we know that we are fleeting. We are feeble. Life is over so quickly. Life is a vapor. And so we need to make sure that in understanding God is God and I am not. God is powerful. I am not. God knows everything. I do not. God has all power. I do not. And so when I make plans, that needs to be always what kind of resonates. That has to be the heart posture. Because however great I think I am, however great my resume is, 300 years from now, most likely, no one will remember. Some of you know that I've, I used to really enjoy <clears throat> going for walks through, through, through cemeteries. I know it sounds weird and dark and crazy, but I, there's something sobering about remembering, like walking through cemeteries, people buried in the 1800s. And many of those cemeteries, there's just nothing there. There probably was a time when people would be leaving flowers, maybe decades, where people could remember those folks. It's possible maybe even into 50 or 60 years, but eventually those graves, flowers stop getting left. There's no more defining, discernible markers there. Some of the graves get overgrown, can't even see who was there anymore. Starts to look like an unmarked grave. Why? Because over time, we get forgotten. All the great things outside of a few exceptions, all the things that we've done, they get forgotten. This isn't to be a downer. This is to remember the scope of life, the scope of whatever it is you're working on. It has a shelf life. But God's love, God's mercy, God's heart has no shelf life. It's the only plan that is actually eternal. So that's where we place our hope. That's where we place our sufficiency. That's the heart we have when we plan. That's what a, I can't tell you that's what all successful planning will look like, but I can tell you that's what a successful life will look like. That's the God that loves us. And to ignore that is folly in view of life's uncertainty, frailty, and brevity. So may we be a people that is so rooted in God's heart and God's will that the way we plan reflects that. Think about the things that maybe you're frustrated about right now, about plans not working out. Things that you thought should, there are some things you might think should be working out right now, and they're not. Where is your heart in that? I can't tell you if you're right or wrong on that, but where is your heart in the midst of it? Is your heart posture one that is like, Lord, I might feel like this thing should be there, but you are sovereign. And so I'm going to make sure my heart is rooted in your sufficiency and not mine, because I might even be thinking, if it were me, I would do this. That isn't always working in God's sufficiency either. So may we be a people that is so overwhelmed by pursuing God's will, God's heart, the things that are right and wrong and the right heart postures. Because then and only then will we find true, successful living. That's a faith that works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us over and over again uh, your heart, giving us a picture uh, and a mandate on what it means, on, on how to live out our faith well. Father, I, I repent for the sin of self-sufficiency. I pray that we have a heart that is repentant of ways in which we trust in ourselves. We trust 
in our wisdom, we trust in our logic, we trust in our skill set, we trust in our education, we trust in our resume, we trust in our reputation. And yet, God, all of those things you've shown us are fleeting. God, I pray that you will uh, uh, show us ways or maybe even supernaturally diminish our reliance on these things and inflate our reliance on you. God, convict us of the ways in which we have been trusting in ourselves far too much. And we say we trust you, but we live in such a way that decrees the opposite. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the image, the example that he has left us. Thank you for not only the fact that he's left us an example, but that your spirit empowers us to embody that very example. You have empowered us to look and live like Jesus. So God, I pray that that work that you started, you continue to finish. Let us see more and more examples of our reliance on you and not our reliance on ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's receive this final blessing from God, this benediction. Think about the ways in which our God, the one on whom we rely, the one in whom we have our greatest sufficiency, not in ourselves. Listen to this because you see the heart of God. Every time we do this benediction, you should see and hear these aspects of God's heart regularly. It's a reminder of what should be true of our hearts. And in ways that we might be convicted that it's not always true, you even hear the promise that he has to even make us whole in the midst of that. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It's to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.